Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, where we take a sideways look at modern business, talking to founders and entrepreneurs about the problems they face and how they solve them. I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host and sister, Juliette Ori. Woohoo! And a quick reminder, if you like what we do here, please do rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or whatever you listen to your podcasts on. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at B-I-Z without B-S. Now, with that being said, our guest this week is Drew Holt-Kentwell. Drew is the founder of Catalyst Esports Solutions, an end-to-end esports marketing agency with past and present clients, including Lenovo, Corsair, and the Singapore government. As a formal professional gamer, Drew moved from the UK to Singapore 10 years ago as the former head of global esports at Razer, and since has worked across nearly every facet of the esports industry, including talent management, marketing, events, and more. He combines his global esports expertise and network with an intimate knowledge of how the Southeast Asian esports industry works from within. Drew is also one of the founding board members of the Singapore Esports Association, which is the official national sports association in the country. And to top it off, if that wasn't enough of a tongue twister, Drew is also a qualified mental health counselor in Singapore and runs a youth charity which focuses on gaming and device addiction, as well as other wellness issues that youths face in Singapore and indeed everywhere. We're in very good company indeed. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. The explosion of esports is just fascinating. And I mean, the, the, the basic question when did esports become. A, a serious thing is it all the way back I mean there's there's something on Netflix is it all the way back to the 80s or do you really consider it's dawn more recently the dawn of esports yeah it was in the 80s I think with competitive arcade machines and people playing Donkey Kong and trying to get you know, their name on a scoreboard as high as they could I would say in the last five to ten years when companies research companies really got their hands into it people like NewZoo and Superdata started to, to figure out just how many people were watching and how much money people were spending in this space. So advertising accounts for about 80% of the industry. It's a billion-dollar industry uh, just crossed that uh, that threshold. And that was just esports, the competitive side of it. So I think now that people know they can get involved in esports as advertisers, it's become such an interesting prospect. So when you suddenly have the data available that proves people play games competitively and then people also want to watch them, all of a sudden, people want to spend money on that. It's the next big thing. And there is something about watching someone play a game. I mean, I'm shit at video games, but I have a PlayStation. And when my <laughs> Australian friend moved to the UK and decided that he was going to play my PlayStation the whole time, I was mesmerized. I sat there for hours. You know, it's, it's, it's really fun watching someone else who's good at the game. Because when you play it yourself, it's all fingers and thumbs. And it's like, oh, I don't know what's, you know, I'm trapped. I'm stuck in the corner. I'm stuck in the corner. You know, and if someone's good... It's impressive. Yeah, I think if you compare it to something like football, I think if we play football for fun and then you watch someone who's expert at the game play it, there is an admiration for someone that can do it really well, but you don't really get to see their full skill set in you know a 90-minute game. In esports, the skill gap can be so dramatically huge that if you log on, you can see people online now competing in the game, playing the game in ways you just couldn't imagine. I think the the way that it's best explained is watching people play the game competitively in teams of five versus five. It's like playing speed chess with nine other people live. 
basically. There, there's no other way to explain it. And people have just become so incredibly skilled at doing it. And there's obviously lots of money on the on the line. The last tournament that happened last month it was a $40 million prize pool. So the developer, in the case of this game, the people who make the game build the ecosystem around the game. So unlike football, which is obviously a sport not owned by anyone, in esports, the games are owned by the people who make them. So they get to determine how that ecosystem runs, how the teams interact with each other, and how they raise money. So in this particular case, they've crowdfunded all of that prize pool from people buying digital goods. They take a, a portion of that and they contribute it to a prize pool. Oh, wow. um, but you're right. In many, yeah, in many ways, uh, it's not reflective of the overall uh, you know, industry and what people are spending and also the valuation of businesses in esports. Uh, there is a discrepancy there, I think. Yeah, because I mean, I think the the video games industry is sort of I think it's like two hundred billion in the UK. I don't know, I've got that figure in my head, sort of thing. I mean, the the yeah. the growth of esports. Are you do we expect the prize pots grow equally? Do they? Are we going to be like because the prize pots? I mean, they're they're bigger than you're getting for you know Wimbledon or do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're they're like they must be high, They must be some of the biggest prize pots in the world, are they? Yeah, I think uh, beating things like tennis and and golf for sure. I think that a lot of the money is likely to be rechanneled into things like ecosystem. So in esports, it is kind of the Wild West still, and the way in which you sign player contracts, for example, varies to traditional sports. And I think a lot of new games that are coming out um, need ecosystem-built infrastructure as to how tournaments are run, for example, how players are incentivized to play, how salaries look in teams, you know, how sponsors come on board to, to work with these particular events as well. So... And also the promotion of the game in, in you know, far reaches of the world. Uh, in my case, you know, Southeast Asia is a booming marketplace for mobile gaming, which is a different dimension. You know, we can, <laughs> that's probably a topic for another day, but um, developers want to invest in, eco in infrastructure as much as they do just paying people money because the infrastructure is also going to attract people to play the games and also to settle for the long term. If you're a professional team, you want to make sure that there's uh, some, you know, uh, safety to your investment uh, if you're going to be hiring players to play for you in that particular game and bringing on sponsors behind that as well. And where does the where does the marketing sit? Do you get involved with the teams in terms of so it's what they wear and all of that, and then the placement during the tournament? Is yeah, give me some examples. So as an agency, we will interface with largely the advertisers and the sponsors in the space. So Lenovo are the creators of, of most famously the laptops uh, with a little red button that oh, yeah. can be a mouse. Yeah. They'll kill me for using that terrible example of their business. Multi-billion dollar business, you know, based out of China, but they create a, a vast array of gaming laptops now as well. So we would work with them to build a strategy around how they can tap into the esports market, which is essentially, you know, at the moment, 13 to 35-year-old, largely male um, audience. Quite, quite an old audience, 30 years older. Be. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so if we think esports kind of started off, but not as aggressively in the sort of 90s, there will be people still around who played games um, uh, for fun, but also maybe semi-professionally back in the 90s. So they've stuck around and, and would still play. So yeah, we'll, we'll work with those companies and we'll, we'll understand what their, their needs are, but we'll base our uh, strategy of uh, in consumer insights, industry research, and then we'll go out and we'll spend the money effectively. So it could be that we create an ambassador uh, pool for them to be 
uh, ambassadors for their brand, or we might go and sponsor a team, for example. Uh, we might spend that money on a tournament. So I think traditionally the comparison would be a, sort of a sports agency um, where we interface with the industry on behalf of advertisers and sponsors, essentially. So we can get involved at pretty much all levels. I mean, is it important for you to keep a hand in? I mean, you were a professional gamer once. Is that is it important that you're part of that community still in order to do your job well or...? Yeah, I think it's it's super important. I think that's why we do what we do so well and why we've been really successful is that to explore the industry successfully, you need to know it intimately. And I think uh, there's loads of great examples out there of esports marketing gone wrong and companies have come in thinking they want to sort of exploit it, but they don't have the right advice or insights as to how that industry works. So there's a lot of nuances in esports um, around each individual game, what people like, what age group they are, what things they find funny, what is cringy to them and what's not. As an agency, our job is to make sure we know that on behalf of our clients. So we do need to stay apprised of you know the memes, the trends, the, uh, the stupid stuff to the serious stuff to make sure that when we build you know, a $500,000 marketing campaign for a laptop, we reach people in a way that is understood by them because the younger audiences, especially today, can smell bullshit from a mile off. Yeah, man. I mean, I think all our bullshit detectors are getting pretty good these days, but God, that younger (laughs) audience must be like at another level of bullshit filtering in my brain. So, uh, Drew, what has been your biggest failure? I think in terms of um, what we do... Catalyst, I think, well, I think maybe not staying focused on what we do. Growing up in an industry which has been so massively diverse, um, there are so many different opportunities. So I started out with Catalyst as a marketing, um, you know, company that works with consumer electronics companies to go and find opportunities in the space. And it was very cut and dry, very sort of simple and based on what I'd been doing in the space before. Um, but I think, you know, other things that I've done in the space have, have distracted me. So I would say that, that those things took my attention away from just doing something really well and focusing on it and not being distracted. I would, I would say, uh, you know, in a, in a bigger sense, would, would it be something I could have done a lot better? Yeah. I mean, and is that from your gaming, do you think? Or I think as a person, I'm just very... I want to explore every avenue. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm exhausting every single opportunity. And I think it's very difficult when you're working in this space not to try and link everything together. There was a, a trend at some point, and I think in a lot of other sports this exists, is that as an agency, you can be very popular and very successful by tying the entire ecosystem together. So if you look at like IMG, um, for example, or some of the best representation agencies out there, the Transformers, you know, movies, for example, are created by WME IMG because they own the directors, they own the actors, and they own the license from Hasbro to create the Transformers movies. So as an agency in esports, it's inevitable that you could very well do the same thing. You could own teams, tournaments, and, you know, the, you could own the ecosystem. And as an, for an investor, that's a very interesting prospect. So I think it's, it's quite easy to get tugged in those directions uh, along the way. And yeah, some of them worked out, some of them didn't. But ultimately, I was able to understand the industry much better and in a way that many other professionals of my level probably don't. 
I think you're being unfair on yourself, though. I feel like in business, you've got to look and explore and consider and and do. And you know, you're you're in an ever evolving industry, which I can't imagine ever stands still. So therefore, you've got to be ahead, and therefore, you will disappear down some rabbit warrens to see whether it's worth it or not and and work out okay this is what we're going to do I mean sadly I don't think there is a book that that teaches you here you go this is how you're going to build and succeed and you're going to hardly have to work at all you know yeah it's trial by fire in some ways I think isn't it and I don't have any formal business training I haven't done you know an MBA all my experience stemmed from just coming from a different company that did something kind of similar so Trying to feel out the industry is, is like you said, a constantly evolving kind of beast, really. So I guess you do have to try stuff. And um, I think it's important to know when to pivot and how much time you, you spend on endeavors. But also researching things properly and not jumping in prematurely is also super important. So, I mean, I don't think I necessarily did that, but everything ultimately had a, had a purpose. It sounded like you may have jumped in prematurely on some social media account. <laughs> uh, uh, you've been at the wrong end of the abuse, I hear. Yeah, so I think my most memorable failure at Razor certainly was when we were very much pioneers of the space. Back in the day, we were trying to run our own tournaments. And uh, I, I, I ended up trying to interfere in a, a dispute that happened between two top teams. Uh, where there was money on the line as well, which which should have been a signal to me that people were quite serious about it. And I think what I did was I tried to wade in online. You know, I got my keyboard out, very keyboard warrior. I sat down probably seven o'clock after a, a day of work, and I was like, right, I'm going to fix this. And then um, ultimately, it was the completely wrong thing to do. Right, it didn't consult anyone from PR, um, and everyone just completely ruined us on social media. I think it was the most downvoted. Uh, comment ever on our social media account on on Reddit or something. Yeah, delete, delete, so, delete. You know. Yeah, God. exactly. When all you need to say is now I've learned. Thanks. We'll look into it. Yeah, and yeah. You don't yeah, even yeah. have to say you'll get back to them because you can also not get back to them, and no one's going to remember. Yeah, yeah. It's that easy to make a mistake. So I think yeah, that was a very important life life lesson. For me. It's when they see that you put thanks. I'll get back to it. On every reply, on everything you do, <laughs> people start yeah. to be this motherfucker. They, oh, did he give quit, you a yeah. thanks? I'll get back to you line. You know, I've heard that one. Yeah. What do you find the most uncomfortable about being in business? I had no idea what my expectations were, honestly. I just knew that I could do what I was doing, but but better. And I and, and the, the space was so, you know, greenfield that I, I had no idea what I was getting into. I think I just wanted to do it as an alternative, but I had no idea how it would have evolved or how it would have done. But I think some of the, the, the difficult things that I find is, is coming up uh, against uh, big companies who don't understand the space. I think that's very difficult to, to sell. I think that it's like cryptocurrency. If you do anything in the cryptocurrency space, you just turn people off immediately because you first need to explain to them what is cryptocurrency before you can even look at a white paper on a project that's built around that. And it's the same with investing in esports is, uh, you know, I had so many investor conversations around the team that I built, my current company, and it almost always comes down to people misunderstanding how the industry works and just not knowing that intricacy. I think you have to really be part of the space to know. Uh, I mean, I hope I've given you a taste of 
how complicated it can be, but for an investor who's willing to spend, you know, a decent amount of money, um, they need to know that it works. Yes, we're profitable. Yes, we, we, we have great revenue, but what's the long-term game? You know, are you going to be successful all the time? So convincing them of some of those parts has been quite difficult. Raising money, effectively. Raising money for your, your business. Yeah, raising money has been hard. I think investments in general in esports are a bit of a hard sell. You know, there's figures out there that list some of the top pro teams as, um, you know, over $100 million and, and, and much higher uh, in terms of value. And they're not profitable. And yeah, it can be frustrating when, you know, we have great profit and we do good business, but it's not necessarily, it's not very sexy, right? We're just performing a service for people in a particular space. And I think that it's about trying to streamline that process. Um, how do you become a more efficient agency? So if you look at all the, the Ogilvy's and the big you know, agencies out there that do a very similar thing to us, people believe that the agency world, the network agency world is, is coming to an end, that that doesn't work as a concept necessarily. So I think for us doing that, but also doing it in esports has been very challenging. It's a still a young industry. I think when, when industries are young and still misunderstood, like you're saying on crypto, all, all esports, yeah. all of that, the, the people that invest don't know anything about it yet. You know, the age group of investors and companies that invest, it's educating them and, and bringing them along that at some point they will start and you will be the sexy one and everybody will be wanting to put their money in. Um, but for you, it's finding yeah. the people that know about it so that then actually come on the journey with you rather than you sitting and spending your time educating them and them saying, no, thanks. Yeah, I think that's really important is finding the right people that can also innovate what you do for your space because a lot of people who invest in network agencies now are always trying to push up that margin is, you know, a good profit is going to be between somewhere at 20 to 25 or 30% of a job that you win. But essentially, finding ways to streamline that, whether it be working remotely or just serving that business differently is quite difficult to nitpick, I think. So for us, it's, it's maybe about trying to find more ways we can engage uh, an audience or how we can own an audience, for example, is to make us more appealing as an agency as opposed to just, we just do services, right? We're a creative agency or we're a marketing agency. So yeah, there are definitely different aspects to it like that that, that need to be explored. It's weird getting old. Like, like you're, you know, there's so much change and you, you have these reference points of the way you understand the world and you built those up when you were very young. You know, I'm watching my young kids do it, like maybe you will as a, or are. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's something so confusing when you're four years old, but you finally get it and he's sort of like, oh, okay, I understand how that works. And then what happens now is that you're, whether it be crypto, I mean, crypto is a great example because you can get confused, but then you're like, well, did you ever really understand money? Well, most people couldn't tell you what money is because it's a pretty <laughs> confusing concept, a trust in tomorrow or something, and you've just accepted it as this thing. Yeah. So, And then you're, yeah. doing, you're doing marketing, you're doing an old thing in a new space, which is also an old yeah. space. It's like, and so you're sort of, oh, I could get trapped in paths that were there before but really this is all greenfield yeah. you know it's all like it's all fresh you could do you you know you and people come up like you know when they come up with stuff and they're like oh no but what you do is because someone sent a sentence to me yesterday oh we're setting up in the metaverse and then we're gonna we're gonna have a uh, you know they literally connected every buzzword together in a sentence and you're just <laughs> like you know, fuck you know i have Please. to break that down into what i can understand you know yeah yeah 
Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that that really is a struggle for me as someone that um, I, I need to try and maintain the vision for my business. I think that's very important as a startup and anyone that's going to be successful in a new business is that you do need to stay true to what you know you do well and what you can succeed at. But then, like you said, you get a lot of old school business coming in and explaining to you, no, you know, I've had conversations with network agencies and they tell you, we want to do what you do, but we want to bring it into the agency world. You know, we want to take aspects of what you do, but we'll make you a real agency. So I have to think, is that what I want to do? Like, Mm. do I want to become a real agency or do I want to just do what I'm doing? And there's no real reference as to whether you're doing the right thing or not. So I've always found that hard. And I think you just have to do what you think is right. Stay true to your values as a company. And so long as your projections are good and you're continuing to make money, but doing it in a space that you know really well, then I think that's good enough. But yeah, people always want more, I suppose. And now a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Dominic Frisby sat down with Andy Ori and James Pleece to talk about tax reliefs. R&D stands for Research and Development. The scheme is the government's way of supporting companies which are engaged in certain activities they really want to encourage. It's one of the most generous schemes around. Uh, There's technically two schemes, but they operate in fundamentally the same way. Uh, Each one gives you a certain portion of your costs you spend on qualifying activities back. Back in cash. Yes, back in cash. That's important to note. In your bank account, Yeah, yeah. surprisingly. So if I spend £100 on R&D, I will get £33 back. For one of them and £10 back for the other one. So the way it works is the government basically says for every pound you spend on R&D, for tax purposes, you can treat it as £2.30. For your deduction in your tax return. And then they say if you've got any losses after this, you can apply a fixed rate and we'll give you cash at that rate. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. This is, you know, always something of interest to us. Um, you know, what is most misunderstood about being an employer? I mean, how many staff have you got now? We're not super big, to be honest with you. I think, with including my other projects, we were we're only about ten or fifteen. But in my core business, we're only five or six people, so we're super lean. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so that's what we've tried to innovate on: is how can we do the agency job better with less people? And and Singapore is a great way to do that because you know of. of the general salaries here, but the, also the education and, and the, the quality of, of staff you get here um, is amazing. But I, I think some of the things that I found misunderstood would, would be that starting a, a new business is exciting. And I think there's that initial honeymoon period that you can get really caught up in. But ultimately, if you want it to survive beyond a year, you need to graft and you need to, to build long-term strategies that ultimately require other great people to be on board in your business as well. And I think that longevity is is crucial. Startups are exciting. And I think that there's a lot 
um, to be said for that initial passion, but there needs to be that sort of tail end side of things as well. Is it easy to do business in Singapore? Singapore is incredibly attractive for businesses for tax reasons, for the ability to set up new business. The Singapore government is always attracting foreign business, local business, and they are always throwing grants at people. So it is very easy to do business. There's a lot of traditional business here where you meet and you have dinners and you go out and have drinks. I mean, like like anywhere, I guess, but in Asia, that is very much the tradition, right? Is people in the major roles or C-suite levels uh, are all very old school in, in that respect. So I think from that perspective, it's not super easy, but Singapore is a very, it's a very forward thinking, it's a very wealthy nation and uh it's it's yeah i would say it's been been very easy for us to do business here and and collaborate to collaborate with the government on certain things is a real advantage i think and a lot of companies can say that they have had support from the government actively to to making themselves successful here yeah do you find you get nervous there at all i mean i remember being in the british embassy with some singaporean businesses in singapore and they all started whispering and i was like why are we whispering and they were like they were talking about the ta- maybe me the grants or something and then one was like you never know who's listening and i'm like we're in the british embassy <laughs> in singapore i'm pretty sure we don't have to whisper and they were like oh yeah maybe not or something and i was like god that was weird So what's the hardest thing you do in your job and how do you deal with it? I think finding new business, you know, as I referred to just now, is kind of part of the same thing. It's very difficult trying to find new people to spend money on you uh, and proving that it's a good space to spend money. Because if you're selling, you know, sponsorship in football, everyone knows the numbers and what you can get from that partnership. Whereas if you're, you know, I don't know, if if you're a sports brand like, ASICs that wants to get into esports, there's so much work that needs to be done vetting the space and then the company that's going to execute that for you that someone in the marketing team, the CMO, is just going to say, you know what, let's just do tennis again. Yeah, or, or even let's do esports, but let's go with the most well-known boring agency, I guess. You get a sort of double layer, maybe. That is so true and that that has happened recently. You see so many big brands who have spent clearly lots of money getting involved in esports. And a a really good example recently is Coca-Cola spent a ton of money marketing on this this gaming advert for people. And it was a resounding failure. People, you know, across the the, the gaming sphere, anyone I think that, that has any sort of understanding of gaming knew that it was terrible. And it was just a clear example of executives in a boardroom probably brought on an agency who they knew really well or relied on to just do the esports stuff for them just say go go and do some gaming stuff for us as opposed to specifically hiring an agency that specializes in esports which would have had a much better result and probably would have been half the cost as well so i think that's very hard to try and navigate that relationship with people how do you get in the room it ultimately requires a lot of networking. It requires you being in the right places, having a really good, you know, uh, address book of people that you know want that service already. And then you can plug in maybe to another agency as well. But I think that companies need to admit that they don't have those services and that esports is more complex than they are able uh, to, to work with um, and, and inevitably need, need some help with it. What's the pitch? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about Wimbledon or I'm thinking about what's the online tennis game? I don't know. Or I'm thinking about eSports. What do you offer? What does eSports or marketing offer that 
traditional mark, you know, traditional sports marketing doesn't. I think the access that our clients have or potential advertisers in esports have to an audience is unmatched. The ability to sell your product via so many different parallels at the same time. So for example, if I'm watching a live esports event, I might see in person, I might see branding in the stadium for my brand. I might see ASICs branding in the stadium. But I'm also seeing the players who are playing. One of the teams have ASICs sponsorship on their shirts. And I've seen a video from one of those players using ASICs um, you know, shoes, for example, in an ad that he did last week. And at the same time on Twitch, which is you know the broadcast channel of that, they're also running ASICs ads. So although that is an extreme example, that sounds like a lot of um, ASICs marketing kind of flying at you, ASICs might have a link in the description of that Twitch broadcast, and it might be called out by the commentators in a very authentic way. All I need to do as a potential customer is click a link, and I could be purchasing something in two clicks. Wow. And that doesn't happen in traditional sports. It's, It's lighthouse marketing where... I might see McDonald's once or two, th- two times, three times. And the fourth time I might think, yeah, I'm going to go get a Big Mac. But with eSports, it's very much driven into you immediately by the brands, by the tournaments, by the, the brand you know, advocators, the ambassadors, and the ability to purchase something super quick uh, is, is unrivaled. So the conversion rates you see based on what people see and how many people uh, buy that thing are much, much higher than traditional uh, sports as well. I agree. Although McDonald's Big Mac advert, I only need to see once. Those fuckers have got me locked down. I'm, you know, if there's a McDonald's within reach, it's like, oh, yeah. You know? It's not even a very good burger, but it just—they just got that picture it's just not, right. Yeah. I don't know. So, if there's one thing in the world you could change, what would it be? With your virtual magic wand. My current hope would just be that we can we can raise more awareness about about some of the dangers of gaming, but but you know continue to embrace the the, the positive sides of it. I think it's a very bit of a boring answer, but there is a way for it to to live hand in hand. And I think at the moment, I am definitely concerned about the trajectory that that, East, that gaming is on in terms of how it can affect young people. And we see that every day here in Singapore and, and in Asia, where people have access to that on their phones. They don't need a device uh, outside of their phone necessarily to do that. So I think. You know, I'd love to change that there would be more awareness about that. I know that WHO is currently researching creating this as a as a disorder as part of the DSM six, I assume, is that it would be called internet gaming disorder. So I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing to do because diagnosing people with disorders as well is also not necessarily helpful. Double edged sword. Yes, absolutely. So but at least that there's some awareness and some research being done about the dangers of it, potentially. So I think currently where it's headed is, is a bit of a, a scary situation. It would just be nice to have a bit more awareness about that, I think, in, in some shape or form. Is that what led you to become a counsellor? Yeah, absolutely. I think as I played more games and became a little bit more self-aware about how I was consuming games, even even today, maybe it's because I have a, a small child at home, is I still get very intense cravings to play new games because I know how deep into them I can get. And when a new, you know, game comes out like World of Warcraft or a new MMO, you know that could consume you for potentially years. And I think just being able to be aware of that is um, is very important. But people who are not aware of that go down a very 
difficult path potentially where they they're not sure how much too much use is and they're not sure how to you know find friends or, or have relationships online so i think for me knowing that that was the case and people that i'd met online who had gone through really difficult situations you know i met a lot of people who were depressed or self-harming who you know, had social anxiety was matching the professional skill set i had with a new one which was trying to you know become a counselor and, and work with people who who might struggle with those things what's the best piece of advice you were ever given I think the best piece of advice that I had in life and that I applied to business is don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. And I think that has driven me to become as efficient as I possibly can in creating new ventures. I think I'm able to get a lot done in a very short amount of time. And I think that ethos has really helped me in terms of execution and the people I worked with. And just in general, in my industry, it is for some reason a habit to have great ideas and to talk a lot about what we could do, but to never actually execute and to never actually get it done. And for some reason, that just really annoys me. I can't handle the concept of talking a big game, but never giving it and never executing on it. So I think that advice really plays into that. And, um, you know, even if it's like starting new projects, I'm massively energized and I just get it done as soon as possible, maybe to the project's detriment, but it helps me complete things you know, in their initial launch stages uh, very quickly, at least, as well. I'm all with you, because otherwise it becomes bullshit. Like once you've said something three times, it's <laughs> bullshit. It's like, why do we keep bullshitting, yeah. you know? Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I have to end on this. Uh, this has been very interesting. But as a Brit, and I'll, I'll look past the fact that you've run away to Singapore, <laughs> are the Brits good at esports? <laughs> are, we, are we, you know what, the, I'm not even a sports person, but you know what we're like. We like to invent as many games as possible and then be very average at them. Are we any good at esports? Yeah, there are certain British people, I think, who, who are, but there are no standout, really famous British esports players. Damn. A lot of British people interact in the behind the scenes. And and I have to wonder, you know, I always kind of recite this this story to people and, and try to think about my upbringing in, in, in the UK and why games were or weren't acceptable is that games are very stigmatized in the UK. We didn't have gaming cafes, going to gaming events was just weird, right? You're mm. supposed to be playing rugby or football or doing rowing or whatever it is, depending on what school you go to. And it's just not, you know, considered socially acceptable in, in many cases. Not so I cool. think it's not cool. Yeah. A lot of the people involved in the industry today are the best people I can think of are reporters, they're team owners, they work in marketing, they run events, but very seldom do we see people who are really, really good at playing does any country really stick out? Yeah, Chinese. Definitely the Chinese are the best in the world. The South Koreans, the Swedish. The Swedish. Bloody Swedish. Yeah. It's always the Swedish <laughs> coming in here with their flat pack <laughs> furniture and their excellent music apps. <laughs> <laughs> right, down to the easy bit, mate. What are your top three reads? Yeah, so my, my reads are not, nothing business related, but um, very much into like dystopian science fiction. So Red Rising by Pierce Brown is an amazing read. I don't read heaps, but that was something I consumed immediately with almost an addiction. Um, What's it about? It's about the future of the world, basically. It's, it's based on Mars and the world has colonized, Earth has colonized Mars. And it's about uh, this kind of lowly, guy who essentially poses as someone in a higher class than himself as a way of trying to sort of beat the system. 
Uh, it's just written in a first-person perspective, you know, very compelling, um, yeah, very compelling fiction, I, I guess, which I really enjoyed. So When Breath Becomes Air, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, really, really good brain surgeon in the States. The story is sort of set around him being one of the greatest neurosurgeons in his generation, and he basically uh, acquires metastatic uh, lung cancer out of the blue, stage four cancer he's fighting and he's, uh, his wife is pregnant. It's not a very, um, it's not a very fun book, um, but it is a very sobering um, look into basically the, the, the guy's last, you know, testament, his memoirs of what he went through in life. Yeah. And it's a very sobering, very uh, good read as to why you should embrace your life as it is now and, and not what it could be when you, you know, leave it too late. <laughs> yeah, fuck about, yeah, man. When I read, I read big. <laughs> and the and and the last one, which title's already concerning me. <laughs> tell me about the uh, tell me about this yeah, light so read. As someone as someone who's interested in counselling and um and psychotherapy, Irvin Yalom is is one of the sort of leading psychotherapists in in the US. He's quite old now. But but this book is just an insight into some of the clients that he's had in the past, and he basically puts it into a story as to the, the the situations that they went through, how he counseled them, and the stories that you get are just very um, yeah they're just very human stories, but also people obviously going through a lot of difficult times, and the way he he approaches those is is very much a good read. So what's uh, the name? Also of it? a very good uh, loves executioner. Very good. Okay, so that brings us to our favourite part of the show, the business versus bullshit quick fire round. D, cue the music. So this is where we reel off a list of key terms and all you have to do is tell us whether you think it's business or bullshit. Drew, are you ready? I'm ready. Right, go for it. And a start. <clears throat> Diversity quotas. Bullshit. Correct. <laughs> Stand-up meetings. Stand-up meetings. Bullshit. Correct. Sorry, I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee. Um, business, I think, for sure, yeah, for me, needed. We could say any stimulant drug, really, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not required for everyone, but... Yeah, well, this is where he decides whether the guest is on his side <laughs> yeah. or not, and whether he's going <laughs> to carry on or not. Yeah. So, therefore, you know, your answers are quite key, Drew. If you never want to hear from him again, do, do incorrect <laughs> answers. Um, agendas. Um, as in meeting agendas. Mm. Yeah, business. I think you need some way to guide uh, meetings, otherwise they can they can become unproductive. Or they might become hour long. Next one, hour long meetings. <laughs> um, bullshit. <laughs> Agreed. Now this is a very very key one, Drew. This is where Andy really decides whether you're mates for life or not. Office dogs. Office dogs. Yeah, business for sure. Yes, I have a dog. No! <laughs> <laughs> um, Definitely. Slogans in the workplace, you know, big words stuck up on the wall to inspire 
Okay, both party bullshit on that one. I think having having some form of um, like company value or um, you know ethos is very important. But I think if it becomes too too cliche, I think it's it's, it's a bit shit. Agreed. Oh, okay, you're still friends. Well yeah. done, true. You've done very well. You're, you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're scoring very well here. Uh, swearing in meetings. Swearing in meetings, business. Good, a good British answer there. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. sure that's the Singaporean way. Maybe it is. Don't know. I can't avoid that. Yeah. Uh, pub lunches. Pub lunches, business for me, but not accepted in Singapore. Oh. <laughs> Sadly. So ask people a lot, do you want to go for a beer? They're like, oh, I prefer coffee. Okay, fine. <laughs> Maybe another time, I guess. Uh, board minutes. Board minutes. Yeah, I think you need those business. Agreed, sadly. NDAs. NDAs, terrible. No use at all. Bullshit. Good answer. I'm loving this guy. He <laughs> <laughs> may pass the test. <laughs> Acronyms. Acronyms, personally, not a fan, but in Singapore, acronyms are everywhere. It is, it is unfortunately necessary oh, <laughs> to some God. degree. See, I can't deal with them. I'm so bad at dyslexic. I don't know what's going on. Exercising. Is he going to get the correct answer? Dun, dun, dun. Um, exercising, I'd say, bullshit. I think you can be a great businessman and not necessarily exercise. Um, great stuff. So, Drew, if our listeners want to find out more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? They could go to catalystesports.com. I'm on Twitter, at Drew7UK. But you can find me at our website and you can find out where we do more and, and ultimately craft your strategy around esports. Um, willing to give people free, free consultations for what is a, an incredibly complicated space as well. But hopefully today I've, I've been able to shed a bit more light on why it's an interesting ecosystem, how your brand can potentially, you know, get some value from that. Um, and if you, you feel that it can, I'm, I'm sure that we're, we're able to do that for you. Yeah. And if you've got kids and you're worrying about them, I guess um, the charity that you're involved in, they can, they can talk to you about that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Healovertime.org is essentially a direct invite to an online peer support group where we offer uh, peer support and, and free counseling for anyone that needs it as well. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to Drew for joining us. A big thank you to my dear sister, to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at B-I-Z without B-S, where you'll find more useful business content. Until next time, it's cheerio. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at oriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark. You provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.